Brett and Harry, good to see you guys. How are you doing? We're back. We're on the other side of the mic this time. <laughs> it feels good. Same setup, just different podcast. Yeah, different podcast. Uh, last last time we were, we were just talking before the show, I was on your podcast and you guys were interviewing me. Now we get to turn the table since you've been doing this Meet Mafia podcast for like a year now. Is that right? Yeah, a little yeah. over a year. And you were, were you, I think you were our first, <laughs> one of our first in-person episodes. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. We caught him right before his trip and meat is kind of the thing that brought the three of us together because we had we met you at the beef initiative event at cooper's mm -hmm. and we had cole from knc cattle talking about the perspective of the regenerative rancher mm. you were right up front i, mm. I could tell you were really tuned into what he was saying he, ordered a tomahawk. he, he bought the tomahawks <laughs> and then i remember seeing on twitter you just started loading up on beef in bulk and it's been uh, so cool to see uh, yeah and uh and i ordered soon as i got back i i ordered before i came back i was like can you deliver on this day because i'm going to be back yeah I I want to make sure I have my supply of meat and of course KNC deliver for me. So are you doing full chest freezer now? Yeah, oh, it's it's been chest, full chest freezer for, you know, wow. well, even from before I left. Oh, so nice. yeah, I'm I'm about halfway through my half cow since then. So three months, half a cow. So I think one cow per year, I, I guess is, is, <laughs> yeah. is, a, is a pattern. You, the thing with the beef in bulk is you just have to really make sure you like ground beef. Cause what is it like? Is it like 70% of it is almost ground beef or something yeah. like yeah. that? If you do half cow, you're getting about like 200 pounds. Oh, then, I, I yeah. love ground beef and I, I, I make burgers all the time and I'm, I'm looking into more recipes, but anyway, yeah. uh, all that said, I, I wanted to talk to you guys about food because I mm -hmm. think, um, the, the thing that's uh, very different, I think, in the Bitcoin community is that people are very conscious about food, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and I, I think this is something that a lot of people get into as a result of, you know, getting into Bitcoin and stuff like that. And you guys obviously have had many podcasts under your name now. Um, how do you guys think about food and what, what, how does that contrast to, say, the standard American, like how they think about food and, you know, what, what's the big difference there? Yet. Yeah, I think there's a few different lenses that you can look through the f like food in general from and mm -hmm. the most obvious and like highest level one is just real foods versus processed foods. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the vernacular around foods has changed over the past 50 to 100 years, as you know, mm -hmm. but I often just try to think about like, what would my grandma have eaten mm -hmm. and try to eat along those lines. It's like incredibly simple and almost boring to <laughs> say something like that. But like, it is true. Mm. Uh, I think the challenge is actually applying that knowledge and mm. like using it because there's so many highly processed foods. There's food scientists out there today trying to actually manipulate your taste buds and make you addicted to certain types of foods. Mm. Plus those foods are cheap and affordable. So it's very easy to fall into the trap of just eating these cheap, cheap foods. Mm. So you really need to be like very conscious about the foods that you're putting in your body. So starting with like real foods versus ultra processed foods. And then mm. from there you can get more and more myopic. But, mm. um, I really think for most people who are just trying to like take those first few steps, just trying to keep it as simple as possible. I don't know if you would add anything to that. But. Yeah. I would just say to what, to your point, it's like, we've kind of, as humans, we're like the only species that doesn't actually know what real food is. <laughs> and it's been like the last hundred years, but maybe even the last like 40 or 50 years where things have gone, drastically wrong. And so, you know, Harry and I, I'm 29, Harry's 30. Mm -hmm. We've kind of had our, both of our experiences with nutrition and trying to discover what food is at a young age. And we both kind of leaned into our own like 
anecdotal stories, like not looking at a peer reviewed study, but just mm -hmm. kind of understanding what's worked really well for us. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was telling you a little bit off camera. Um, so I got really sick when I was 21 years old, my senior year of college, I got diagnosed mm -hmm. with ulcerative colitis, which is an autoimmune disease that affects your colon mm -hmm. and any itis, whether it's, you know, colitis, um, proctitis, anything like that. Itis just means severe inflammation in the body. Mm -hmm. So for me, whether it was like, it was probably a combination of stress, poor dietary choices, consuming too much alcohol, ex lifestyle, et cetera. I developed a severe inflammation in my colon. And so my body wasn't able to process any of the foods that I was eating. I was basically mm. just going to the bathroom a bunch mm. to the point where I had like lost 30 pounds. I was hospitalized and I was put on these biologic drugs that cost, it was $400,000 a year. I would get them administered through an infusion. And I think the number of people in the US that have autoimmune disease, I think it tips at like 20 million people. And these diseases really didn't exist over a hundred years ago, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so for me, everything changed in 2019 because I started hearing this term, the carnivore diet being popularized. Um, I listened to Dr. Sean Baker on Joe Rogan's podcast, like a lot of people did. And he was explaining that animal products are wrongly demonized and they're some of the most nutrient dense foods that you can put into your system. And they're also the most bioavailable. So the body processes these things incredibly well. And the kicker for me is he was saying that all these people that had similar autoimmune diseases and also diabetes and some of these other incurable chronic diseases were curing these things by following an all animal products diet. So for me, I'm 23, 24 years old. I don't wanna be on drugs that cost $400,000 a year. So I'm like, why would I not at least experiment and see if there's anything to this? Literally within the first two weeks, my stomach got way better. I was, I was down going to the bathroom one to two times a day, which was like, I went from going 20 times a day to one to two times a day. My skin got better. I was effortlessly putting muscle on at the gym. I was popping out of bed with like energy alertness, anxiety that I had had, depression, things like that all went away. So for me, that was kind of my, my moment of like, food really is medicine and you need to treat yourself like you're someone that matters. And the foods that we've been told are healthy really are not healthy. And the foods that we've demonized are actually some of the most nutrient dense products. So that was kind of the launch pad for the show because I ended up following this diet for two plus years, got off all the drugs. My GI doctor who's had thousands of patients, to my knowledge, I'm the only patient that's ever gotten off of this medication before. And I can confidently say it's because of the foods that I was choosing to nourish my body with. So to get back to your question, we've really just lost this ability to understand what food actually is. Like, you know, we're the most capable, intelligent species, yet we're the only species that doesn't actually know what foods we should be choosing to put into our body, which is super counterintuitive. But that was kind of the launch pad of our show is just trying to figure out like, where have we gone wrong as a society? What actually are the right foods and how do we become healthy again and thrive? Yeah, and, and what I really like about your show is that you are trying to explore this stuff from first principles. And uh, the thing that I got from both of your answers is that there is sort of like a, a trust that the standard American places in some sort of food authority. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's led to sort of that abuse of trust where you know they're being led to eat foods that are just absolutely garbage. Mm -hmm. um, so what what do you guys think happened? Or what what's the I mean, I think we kind of know what happened. But like, what what's the actual process by which all of these foods got vilified, uh, all the nutrient foods got vilified, all the 
bad foods got sort of like elevated or made to seem much less poisonous than they actually are? What what happened? What's what's what what's the cause of all of that? Yeah, I think the big theme is that food just got industrialized after mm. World War II. Mm. So when you look at the number of farms in the US mm. after World War II, pre-World War II is something you know, there's a graph out there that shows it and it's it's like it's remarkable. They basically shrink the size or shrink the number of farms and farms got way bigger. So the small farms out there are now not providing for their local communities. And now people are more dependent on farms that are geographically way further away. They're producing higher yielding crops that really weren't typical just a few decades prior. So now we're growing a lot more corn, soy, wheat. And a lot of those were fueled by government subsidies that were really just playing into like the shift in geopolitics at the time, kind of more U.S. trade that's going to be food based was kind of on the rise to mm. I think there was there was a lot of uh, chess being played at a higher level where mm. like the U.S. saw food as a weapon. They, there's a, a really f- uh, interesting article and piece out there by uh, a William and Mary professor mm. who talks about how. Um, we, we really started to think about food as this weapon in the geopolitical game where we we're sending it overseas to really like create defensive positions in certain countries while all of these different wars were being fought. So I think that was like a big fuel for the change in the food system. So we're now just trying to create high yielding crops that were more chess pieces. And then, um, you know, that was kind of like the 50s and 60, 60s. And then going into the 70s, we started having regulation come in and or, or uh, guidelines come in that were steering you know, how the average consumer thought about food. So everyone knows the food pyramid. The bottom of the food pyramid is a lot of wheat and cereals and 11 servings of pasta. And, um, you know, that kind of plays into this shift of this massive supply of all these cheaper, higher yielding crops. And now, okay, we need to teach the consumer how to actually think about nutrition now. So it was, it was this massive shift um, kind of right around the 1950s where there's just much more availability of these cheaper, higher yielding crops. And then we started to like tinker with, you know, the narrative around nutrition to get consumers um, more apt to eating foods that they weren't typically eating, you know, a few decades prior. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have. No, I think that's that's an amazing answer. And even like even what you were saying too, Jimmy, I remember the first time that we had connected with KNC or started connecting with local ranchers. It was so, I remember being so amazed, being like, I can't believe I actually know a rancher or a farmer <laughs> and I just buy my meat directly from them. They're just like, now they're just so many corporatized touch points that we're, we're so disconnected from our food system. We're back in the day, I, Slim talks about this often. I know you're gonna have him on your podcast again. Mm-hmm. Like back in the day, the relationship was like, you actually knew who your local farmer and rancher was. Maybe there was like one beef processor per mm-hmm. county. These things were very decentralized. Now it's like four beef packers control 85% of all meat in the grocery store. So it's like, you know, small governing body that controls a massive amount of supply. So obviously that's going to hurt the rancher that's growing the the actual product. And then also you as the consumer too. And there's just been this very quiet 
capture around the food that we eat. And what I mean by that is when you actually walk into a grocery store, there's about 40,000 products or 37,000 products in the average grocery store. <laughs> Most of them are in those inner aisles. Mm -hmm. So you see thousands of different boxes and packaging and designs, and you kind of think, oh, free market, they must be all controlled by different companies. It's really like 10 to 12 companies <laughs> that own all of those things. And to Harry's point, all they're really doing is they're taking different variations of like corn, wheat, soy, sugar, and just combining them into this hyper palatable concoction that's like, you reach your hand into a Doritos bag, it's so hyper palatable that you know it's terrible for you, but you can't do anything but crush the entire bag because it's so delicious. So they're just combining these cheap ingredients, and then you couple that with what Harry is saying, where the, where the, the government is telling you to eat eight to 11 servings of grain, and red meat is gonna kill you, and I think it's pretty easy to see why, you know, 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. And I think our current healthcare costs are like close to 19% of the current US GDP. So we had this nutritionist on Jay Gulinello that told us that statistic. And he's like, why even go to war when you can just eat yourself to death? And that kind of <laughs> seems like what we're doing right now. Yeah, uh, there, there are two, for people who are into the history of all this stuff, there are two kind of key players in reworking this entire nar narrative around food. One of them is the uh, old Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, who just wanted to increase yield and expand, uh, like basically kill the small farmer. That was like one of his, I'm paraphrasing, but that was like one of his lines was, you know, we, we need to be going from fence post to fence post, fence post to fence post, growing these crops. And then the other one is Ansel Keys, who famously had uh, the seven country study, which <laughs> massively elaborates uh, or, or like illustrates this uh, trend that um, saturated fat is causing heart disease. But, you know, he mm -hmm. cherry picked the data and there's a lot of interesting people who are, you know, Nina Teichels has written about it extensively, but those are two interesting names to dive deeper on just because they were so influential. They were both very charismatic in the way that they spoke about food and they had a huge impact on just changing the whole narrative and direction of how we eat. And they were very deceitful from what I remember. Uh, the seven country study, they did like 23 countries and they just cherry picked the seven that best fit the narrative or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I want to go back to something that you were saying, which, uh, which is something that I hadn't thought of and I'm glad you brought up, which is this idea that it was a way to um, assert U.S. dominance by uh, having a lot of uh, food. And this is something that I read in... Uh, Hidden Repression, Alex Gladstein's new mm. book, um, about how the playbook of the IMF and the World Bank is normally to take a developing country and uh, and get them to produce something, uh, some raw material that's useful to uh, uh, you know already developed countries to Western nations. Mm. Uh, so, for example. <laughs> You know, if there's some uh, some sort of metal, nickel, or something like that, then you know that that becomes a primary thing. But one of the things that they do is they more or less structurally adjust that economy so that there's no local food production, mm -hmm. and that uh, most of these nations end up having to import food. They were mm -hmm. doing fine before, yeah. right? They were growing their own food, you know, creating their own stuff, but. As soon as the IMF World Bank come in with this sort of monetary or monetary colonialism, what what happens is that, you know, they need to import food from Western countries to even live. And 
uh, you know, thinking back to what you said, especially in the 50s and 60s, where the Cold War was absolutely raging, this creating this sort of food dependence is, was something that was very important geopolitically and uh, seems to have uh, become a big part of the reason why food's so debased. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say America's, initially America's greatest asset was its topsoil. Mm. And then now it shifted towards the money printer mm -hmm. and the the army mm. that backs that money printer. Mm. But we've, we've used that topsoil to create a, a need and dependency on the U.S. for food. Um, there's a few really interesting studies out there that just talk about food dependency and how you know, if there were a food crisis, the U.S. would be totally fine. But all these countries that we've created these contracts with to export out different types of food, they would be completely screwed because if anything were to happen, we would just, you know, not fulfill our end of the bargain and, you know, feed the people in the U.S. So it's, yeah, there's, it's concerning because, um, yeah, these countries are basically enslaved to the U.S. because they're dependent on us for food. And it's not even uh, very good food, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's like, it's like yeah. uh, grains and cereals and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? It's like Harry could probably tell you a little bit about just like the history of fertilizer. But to his point, it's like we went from having these like almost like chocolate cake, like so like nutrient rich soil to now it's just so depleted through like chemicalized fertilizer. And it's like, why do we like you drive through Texas, you drive through these different States. It's like, it should be fertile lands for the rancher to be able to flourish. It's like, why are we importing so much beef from, you know, Mexico, Brazil, China, when we could be teaching these practices and kind of bringing back the local rancher mm -hmm. and have this very like scalable flow of a uh, consumer connects with local rancher. They supply you your meat, you trade. That's what it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our health reflects the, the fact that it's kind of gone in the backwards direction. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that. Why, why is it going in the backwards direction? So like you, you're saying, uh, a lot of this land could be used for grazing, uh, you know, very nutritious cattle. Instead, it's being used for monocropping in these enormous, like, you know, uh, fields for soybeans or corn or something that I guess uh, is cheaper to produce or creates more cattle. What, what, what's the economic reason why farmers do that instead of, say, ranching? Mm. I mean, the the government intervention is a huge part of it mm -hmm. because the subsidies effectively pay them for, you know, they they just get they get a check if they do the bare minimum in terms of you know using their land to create um, you know x amount of yield. Like even in some years, um, they'll grow a certain number of crops, but they won't. They'll only get paid as much as the subsidies allow them to be paid, so they won't even use all the crops that they grow. Um, I think the key really is the combination of the subsidies, but also the cheapness of the, the inputs on the chemical side of things. So instead of having to rely on a lot of labor and um, people working the land and the natural processes, which is slower, so there's not as much of a turnaround on the soil, they're relying on chemical fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, things like glyphosate that make it incredibly easy to industrialize the process of creating this food. And, you know, at the end of the day, they can create it in massive amounts, but they're not really doing anything to supplement or improve the quality of the soil. So, you know, they're abusing the land and creating this cheap food. And there's only so many times you can do that before, you know, the, the soil like really doesn't react anymore. We're kind of seeing that or like the water um, that, 
you so one, one great example is like in Georgia we went down to Will Harris's farm White Oak Pastures and he has this amazing video of his farm regenerative farm where he's using multi-speciation to mm-hmm. uh, improve the topsoil and get carbon back into the soil so that it can absorb water and it has all of the life in the soil and then his neighbors who are using monocrop agriculture and just you know repeatedly on that cycle of just doing um, you know spraying chemicals and using the chemicals to actually create the yield on those crops and the runoff on the one property when it rains is like a a river. It's like a basketball court Mm -hmm. that just, you dump a bunch of water on it and just flows right off. Mm -hmm. And then Will Harris's farm is like a sponge. Mm -hmm. It like just absorbs all the water that's coming down. So you think about like which, which one's healthier from an ecological perspective. It's like clearly the one where they're trying to like restore the soil, the soil quality and keep these systems in place. So the cheapness is really just like a shortcut that we can't, um, you know, they're trying to circumvent uh, nature's processes, mm. which are meant to be slow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, it's, a, it's a tale as old as time. Like if you look into it more, there's a great book called Dirt, mm. uh, The Erosion of Civilization by Dave Montgomery. And he talks about George Washington talking about how if we don't take care of our soil, we're going to have to move further west. And if we move further west, there's going to be like nowhere further for us to move because mm-hmm. we're going to be just uh, out of land to um, have our sustenance from. So, you know, this problem ends somewhere. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a scary one. Mm. Well, that, that whole idea of, um, you know, increasing yield, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the sort of like short-term time pressure seems to be very common with farming uh with with all of that and you know as safe dean would say this this is like very high time preference behavior from a lot of these um you know farmers and ranchers even that uh that are kind of illogical when you think about it from a long-term perspective because you are kind of depleting the soil and so on um how much uh how much more money do they make by doing this sort of like on a on a temporary basis and like uh, like what why are they doing it It, that's like the question for me that really is uh is a little strange because i i know there are regenerative farms and so on um Mm. i've had uh joel salatin on my show for example Mm. and you know he talks about how you know the food might cost more but it's it's like way more nutritious and better and tastes good and and things like that and i think people realize that but why aren't farmers going and doing that? Uh, like they, they seem very into this mono cropping and stuff. Is it, is it government subsidies? Is it something else? What I think it's a combination of subsidies for sure, because mm-hmm. there's really nothing protecting a farmer from growing regen. There's no incentive mm-hmm. to do that. It's like incredibly hard to incorporate regenerative practices or even, mm-hmm. you know, if you're trying to feed a cow grass its entire life, it's tough to get that animal really fat. It's mm-hmm. really easy to put them into a feedlot and feed them you know, corn, wheat, and soy. It's like the same things that make human fats also, <laughs> that also makes cattle fat as well. So I think it's incentives. I think also like, you know, Harry and I, I think have done a good job just going out to and meeting a bunch of different farmers in the area. And it's like, you meet people that are fourth, fifth generation, and they're just so concerned about, it's almost like a knife fight. They're just trying to make ends meet. Mm. And so they're so worried about like just putting food on the table for themselves. Like they're just, they're incentivized to be able to grow, you know, corn, wheat, and soy and these subsidized crops. So it's like, I can't even think about 
regenerative practices because I'm just trying to like pay my mortgage. Mm, it's yeah. really interesting. And when you think about when you think about dependency and risk mitigation, mm. you have regenerative agriculture, which is closed loop system. Like when we were talking to Will Harris, he's like, I'm always trying to figure out how to close the loops mm. so that all of these systems can flow on their own and I can just oversee these pro nature's processes just work seamlessly. And then you have the other system that when the U Ukraine war happens and our imports for fertilizer are, are being affected by a war and the cost of fertilizer three to five X's and these farmers are sitting there going, oh, well now my input costs are significantly higher and this is one of the biggest line items on my P&L. Like how am I supposed to mm -hmm. continue to uh, make food profitably? Mm -hmm. And so on the risk side, things are completely um, in favor of regenerative agriculture. It's a more robust and dynamic system. And then on the upside too, in terms of actually making money, these subsidies cap like the amount of money that these monocrop farms can really make without going out and getting more money, getting a loan to buy more land so you can just mm -hmm. create the same amount of yield on a larger plot of land. Regeneratively, you can cr increase density so that you can actually make your, your property more profitable by adding more species and adding different layers into the farm itself. So... Um, if you look into, there's a great book um, by Gabe Brown who talks about how regenerative is actually much more profitable on a mm -hmm. per acre basis. It just requires, like Brett was saying, much more knowledge and a lot more work. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think to some extent we've led farm, farmers astray over the past several decades to the point where they're now dependent on these subsidies and their skill set that we've asked them to continue to develop to be a great food provider is no longer really there unless you're doing it regeneratively, which is like the, the, uh, you know, apex of food production. Um, so yeah, I think with, uh, a lot of the things it, it really is comes down to like, what are we trying to incentivize? And I think the government has done a good job of incentivizing these farmers not, not to really have to challenge themselves in terms of holding themselves accountable to the bottom line and making their land profitable. Yeah, that, that subsidy thing, I guess, is sort of to mitigate some of the risk that they're taking in, in, mm -hmm. in a lot of that. But it does seem like um, a lot of farmers are playing to the rules that have been already set by the government. And, it, and it's uh, and in, in that sense, uh, a lot of it is sort of like the current system is created by the government, the, you know, the, not just the farming, but a lot of other stuff. Um, you guys mentioned, for example, there's really only 10 to 12 companies that create pretty much everything in a supermarket. Totally. Um, there's only four or five companies that control the agriculture, you know, big ag, I guess, I guess is what you call mm -hmm. it. Four or five companies that are meat packers. Um, you know, they, they're just aren't, that many companies doing this stuff, uh, probably due to scale or money or something like that. What, what, uh, what um, incentives does this sort of like massive bureaucracy around food create? And how, uh, you know, I guess, how can that be changed? I guess I'm, I'm trying to uh, give uh, the listeners of this podcast some hope for, you know, changing the entire system because it, it does seem kind of like a monolith. Yeah, I think um, for the listeners, I think a lot of it starts with just how you approach voting with your dollars. Like, who are you supporting at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. Obviously, 
what we're describing is like there's a just a number of multinational companies who have their uh, or a handful of multinational <coughs> companies who have their hands in the food system and you know that shows itself in all the different layers whether it's the number of grocery stores out there there's really like four or five companies that control that the genetics of the animals like there's really like three companies that control that so you really just need to be mindful of who you're supporting mm-hmm. and i think just trying to support the person up the road as much as possible the person you know as much as possible is the right way to approach it but uh yeah it's a challenging topic because so much of it is just predicated on what's happened with money. Like our episode with safety was so enlightening mm. because he just breaks down how the money component of all mm. this, which is what your listeners are probably mm. most interested in, mm. where it's like once these multinational comp- companies can protect their interests in a way that, you know, they can pay off regulators and make sure that they get uh, studies funded that mm. can say a certain thing, like they are really able to continue to funnel, uh, you know, control and, and power to themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's tough, right? It's like we could probably do a three-hour podcast just talking about incentives and history mm-hmm. and kind of how we've gotten into the metabolic health crisis that we're currently in. But I think to Harry's point, like the encouraging and the empowering thing is what Harry mentioned, that there is a very simple solution and it's how you choose to vote with your dollar. It's like if you look at you know, now when you go to some Whole Foods in Austin, you'll see companies with grass finished beef certifications mm-hmm. or organic or non GMO. These things didn't really exist that much like 10 to 15 years ago. So that's mm-hmm. a sign that like, as a consumer, you are voting every time you purchase something. And if you drive enough demand, companies will listen to you, right? Because mm-hmm. they're incentivized to be able to do so. And I always think back to like, there's very few things that you have control over but you do have control over the food that you choose to put into your system and your body. So I think as a starting point, like literally just starting, you know, hey, maybe you're not ready to go find a rancher. You don't know where to find a rancher. (laughs) Even if you just start by shopping at the outer aisle of the grocery store, like for me, when I was 24, I didn't know anything about regenerative agriculture. I was like, beef is beef. Mm -hmm. And the best thing I can do is buy like the budget cuts of meat at the grocery store in New York where I was living. And guess what? Just eating those budget cuts got me off all the meds and cured my my inflammation and this chronic illness that I had. That was that still took me like 90% of the way there. And then as I started to educate and, and inform myself of, you know, these these ranchers that existed and get more intelligent and more diligent, diligent about my sourcing, then I made those switches over to the regenerative system. But it was like still just shopping outer aisles. It's like you as a consumer have the ultimate control of the food that you put into your system. Like no one's no one's actually putting your hand onto the box of cereal in the grocery store and telling you that you need to buy that. Like the government might be recommending that, but as of now, you're ultimately in control of the food that you choose to put in your grocery store and what you choose to purchase for your family, which is, which I think is such an empowering thing because if you even just start changing your own health, you're controlling your small, simple sphere of influence, change your family, change your friends, change your community. It's like that could spiral into a really amazing thing. Well, let's talk about that because um, I, I think uh, this is especially close to the hearts of a lot of people that are listening. Is mm-hmm. yeah, you you if if you are carnivore, if you're eating right, even if you're like keto or paleo or something, so even if you're a vegetarian, right, mm-hmm. what, whatever it is that you're doing, what you find is that a lot of the people around you are just eating awfully, right? Like they're they're eating just absolute crap, and they're. Mm-hmm 
buying the Doritos and, uh, you know, whatever. And maybe not around you because maybe they feel guilty. I, I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah. But but, uh, but a, lot, a lot of people just don't eat very well. And, mm-hmm. I, and it saddens me every time I go to the grocery store and I, I see people checking out. And mm-hmm. the food that they have, it's just like, you know, 12 pack of Coke or something. And, you know, like uh, potato chips and, you know, whatever. And even like their healthy stuff, it's like tofu or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, how, how do you influence those people? Or what, what, what have you found to be effective because in many ways, um, you know, a lot of people, when I tell them like I'm a carnivore or whatever, they, they'll be like, you know, you're, you're crazy or, you know, isn't that unhealthy and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, do you, are you watching what you're eating? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah. Uh, how do you guys handle this community aspect? I guess. It's a good question. The societal pressures are really tough. And I've told Harry this story mm-hmm. a bunch of times, but you know, I was working at a tech company when I first went carnivore. And so, you know, my meals were simple. It was a, you know, pound of ground beef, a ribeye chopped up. I would just bring it into the office, put it in the microwave, eat it every day. And I was getting healthier and healthier by doing that. And it was interesting, like seeing some of these engineers that had degrees from like MIT, Stanford, Harvard, et cetera, they would literally be like 50 to hundred pounds overweight, drinking like a Mountain Dew and an insomnia cookie, ramen noodles for lunch. And they're, they're like, dude, you're literally gonna kill yourself with a heart attack. And I'm like, I'm gonna kill myself. Like you're hundred pounds overweight. I'm getting into the best shape of my life. So it's interesting how it's like, you could have every degree in the world, but you still, we still don't know how to eat, which mm. is so interesting. And I think that one of the common pushbacks that we typically get is that, you know, this diet is so expensive. Mm. You can firsthand attest to this, right? It's like you're cooking delicious gourmet meals that are probably costing you like four to five dollars a person per meal. And they're filling you with nutrients, they're nourishing your family, you feel amazing. And then when you look at someone's cart, it's like you're spending two hundred dollars, <laughs> but one hundred eighty dollars is food like substances, that's not actually food. It's like, maybe they have some salmon in there. Maybe they have like a little bit of hamburger meat or something like that. Most of the things that people are buying aren't actually real food. So it's actually way more expensive to follow the industrialized food system or the standard American diet, because most of the stuff that you're doing isn't actually fueling you. But there's also a great argument to make that red meat actually should be the most expensive thing. It's Mm. the most nutrient dense food you can eat. And there's also like the incredible energy and intensity that a rancher goes through to actually harvest that piece of meat for you. Mm. It should be the most expensive thing. Mm. Like we're conditioned to the point where a fruit cup at McDonald's is more expensive than a double cheeseburger. So it's like, (laughs) you're kind of fighting against this price conditioning that's been beaten into society's head for the last like 40 to 50 years. But I think what we try and focus on with our friends and family is like, focus on the actual investment and the benefit that you're getting from that food. Like what would the version of yourself look like being 20 pounds lighter, right? Having more energy to go do your job. Like for me, if I have more energy to go do my job, I'm better at my podcast. Maybe I'm booking more sponsors. Maybe I'm signing more clients. That's like hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially in my pocket Mm -hmm. that I'm now making because I've put the right foods into my body or someone like you that has little kids, the energy for you to now from the right nourishment to go be able to play with your kids for an extra hour to two hours a day, that's a priceless investment that you'll never be able to get back. So I think we try and steer people in the direction of food is so much more than like losing weight or getting like a hormone score that you want. It's a gateway to actually becoming a better person that maybe you never thought existed before. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there are sort of like different societal 
um, attitudes mm-hmm. towards food, right? Because uh, they're they're the people that live to eat, right? Like they mm-hmm. they the rest like a really fancy restaurant and eating a great meal, like that's that's what they live for. That's what they travel for. Yeah. They go to different countries so they can ha- experience the food there. Um, and then there are people that just couldn't care less, right? Mm-hmm. Like they 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 eat to live, right? They just eat because they have to and. They don't really care, and you know these are typically the people that eat ramen noodles and drink Mountain Dew or whatever. They don't. They don't care. They just want to get it over with. And for both of them, in a sense, they're they're thinking too sort of short term. And mm-hmm. I, I think what you're pointing out is that if if you do have like a low time preference perspective. Um, it's very obvious that having nutritious food and taking care of your body by feeding it the actual food instead of fake food um, is a very good investment. But in a sense, like we're not trained to think in terms of the long term, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, and that's uh, I mean I, I I don't know what how do you well I I guess uh, what I would ask is what like what what's some obvious way to make that uh that like real to people right like one of the things we try to say to people uh-huh. and i mean this is just this is a hard thing to condition into people but mm-hmm. i think when you start to unpack the like the issue itself mm-hmm. it can become exciting mm-hmm. so i think people if they can cook most of their meals and start to mm-hmm. build in these rituals around food that make it enjoyable you're learning a skill you're doing it with other people on the other side of it, you get to enjoy a meal with your friends and family and have a good conversation around food. And everyone gets to see the whole process of you making wholesome foods together. So you know what's going into it, the energy, the love, the care that goes into making a really nourishing meal. Mm. If you can start to gain an appreciation for that, then I think like the derivative effects of that are like, okay, like I'm going to go figure out the right farms to get my (laughs) steak from potatoes from to make this taste better Mm. so we can have a better conversation around better food. Mm. Uh, So one of the things that we've always said is just try to cook more of your meals. Mm. But I think if you can do that in a way where it's communal, um, it can be really empowering for the whole spectrum of the, the process around food. Like in the U S I think one of the biggest issues is we've disassociated and distanced ourselves from that very process of mm-hmm. making food and having a meal around it and having your family together around food and slowing down at the end of the day. Like we're in such a rush or, you know, we don't really care to spend time nourishing ourselves in that way. So we get like the microwavable dinners or we go pick up food from McDonald's up the road and then you, you're not appreciating the food that's on the table. So mm. that's what I would say is try to try to hack it that mm. interest level that way, um, developing a skill around cooking. Sometimes I think about imagine if my like great great grandmother was still alive and she saw like what Uber Eats or DoorDash actually is. Like her <laughs> mind would be blown. It's like the laziest shit in the world. It's like you're having this restaurant that's frying, like they're taking the cheapest ingredients, they're frying your shit in seed oils. And then not only are you not going to pick it up, they're going to just deliver it to you mm-hmm. at your front door. Like that's honestly the craziest concept that we've become so mm-hmm. accustomed to. And like, you know, anything that's worthwhile is going to take a little bit of sweat, a little bit of effort, a little bit of discipline. And I just wish that everyone 
would just experiment with just taking seven days of just cooking, you know, 14 to 21 of your own meals. And like, mm-hmm. like I was saying, you know, shop at the outer aisle, of the grocery store. So maybe it's like, you know, you have two, you, two pounds of meat a day, maybe it's beef, maybe it's chicken, get some fruits, some vegetables, cook with, you know, beef tallow or olive oil or, or ghee mm-hmm. or something like that. And just try it for seven days and just note, like just journal and just notice like your energy from the time that you wake up in the morning to the time that you go to bed. And I would just think that if you did that for seven days, you would feel so good and your meals would be so delicious and your taste buds would actually get rewired to real single ingredient foods that there, there really would be no going back. Mm -hmm. And I think to what you're saying, there are some carnivores that are like, I know how good that I feel on red meat. I'm never going to cheat or deviate from my plan. Mm. And I think that's amazing. But I also think that there's a world that exists where like you can cook the majority of your meals. You can source your food really intentionally. But hey, when you go to Italy and you're at one of the best restaurants in the world, like you're enjoying the tomato sauce and the pasta and everything that's locally grown and forged there. Like I think that that's important. And it's, you know, you go on this trip, you enjoy yourself and then you come back and you get back on like your discipline regimen too. Um, and I do think that there's this component of almost like dewiring our taste buds out of the deception and like mm-hmm. understanding that these processed foods have been created by a food scientist to literally addict you and get you wired to that particular flavor profile. But once you readapt and readjust to these single ingredient real foods, you know, like the sweetness of fruit, the savoriness of a salt and, and steak it tastes so good that you don't want to go back to the artificial shit. Once you mm. try it, you're like, this isn't as good as like the God foods that I've been cooking in my kitchen for the last, you know, month or however long that period is. Yeah. I, I gotta say that was definitely my experience. I, mm-hmm. I, I would go to all of these places and eat the meat and stuff. I'm like, this burger isn't as good as the burger yeah. I cook at home. I know. And the steak isn't as good as the steak I could cook at home and so on. Uh, but I, I want to go back to something that you guys mentioned with uh, with respect to community. You want you want it to be communal. You mm-hmm. want to cook with other people. You want to eat together. Uh, what a lot of people find difficult, I think, is the fact that food is very social. And if mm-hmm. you are out to eat with somebody else and you, know, they, you go to... Mexican restaurant or something like that, where it's like very hard to avoid a tortilla or something with seed oils or something. Like, what do you do? Like, what? How how would you suggest uh, people deal with social situations where becomes kind of awkward if you try to stick to a diet? This, by the way, isn't just about carnivory. Obviously, it's about pretty much any diet where you you have some pressure, social pressure that causes you to maybe slip. So some suggestions. Mm. Yeah. I, this is a really tough one. I think anyone who's ever like been the outcast on the dietary <laughs> front, they know, they know the feeling of being that person. Mm. The best advice I could give is just do a little prep ahead of time and like try to go into any social event already fed. So you can make a decision that you don't feel like you're compromising just cause you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's my best piece of advice. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. eat, eat like a steak or like just something beforehand that satiates, satiates you. Mm-hmm. So you're not sitting there going, well, I'm freaking starving. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to go get the, you know, start the domino effect of d- making one bad decision, <laughs> at least a two, three, four. And yeah, maybe you have like, uh, um, 
you compromise a little bit, but you don't mm -hmm. compromise all the way with some of the decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I know it's what Harry said is simple, but a lot of times we do it and it's really effective. We're like, if we know, hey, we're going to go out to eat at eight, maybe at like six, we'll make like a little bit of ground beef or some steak or some chicken where it's like, at least I have the protein and the fat to satiate me so I can kind of come to my senses when I'm at this dinner. Mm -hmm. And it's like, maybe if you're going to a Mexican restaurant, you know, most places it's like you can get tacos and a lettuce wrap where you'll be like, mm -hmm. hey, can you hold can you hold the tortilla or the bun or whatever it's being served on too, or get like the carne asada or the beef with like some sauteed onions or something like that. Mm -hmm. And also like maybe you just say, fuck it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to actually just have the tacos, but I'm not <laughs> going to go crazy with it. And I know that the next day I'm just going to reset my, you know, reset and get back on track. I think there's a lot of like morality and almost religious like natures associated mm -hmm. with diet and there's a lot of guilt in that process and it's like i hate using the word cheating on your diet mm -hmm. it's like if you're in if you're at a mexican restaurant with your family or whoever it's like you're just in you know you're just enjoying a meal with them and then you're just going to get you just went off your diet you're going to get back on the plan the next day too mm -hmm. but i think there's like plenty of off menu options that restaurants will offer and cater to or say you know hey can you maybe cook this in butter instead mm -hmm. of seed oils or mm -hmm. but i also think that eating that small meal before you go out it kind of allows you to come to your senses where you're like i'm not so hungry i'm going to have 50 tortilla chips maybe i'll have like three or four with a little bit of guacamole where i kind of get that fixed but i don't need to go crazy and like gorge myself mm. yeah some good tips there on how to, how to handle yeah. the a very awkward social situation all right so let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the benefits and uh i i, I know you guys talk about food uh, a lot on your podcast but that's not all you talk about you talk about health and exercise and a lot of other things. Uh, let, talk to me about uh, some of the other benefits where if you have sort of discipline in your food, where if you do um, nourish yourself properly, what, where else does this benefit show up in your life? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe some places that you might not expect. Yeah, I mean, habit formation mm. is so challenging for all the different reasons, but food is the easiest really the easiest way to build habits because you eat every day for the most part. Uh, so I, th I think for me, discipline in one area of life mm -hmm. typically transcends to others and discipline, like so many people say, discipline is the path to freedom because the more you can just get certain areas dialed in, the more efficient you can be, the less mental headspace you spend thinking about certain things. Like I think about the mental bandwidth that mm -hmm. society as a whole spends thinking about food. And I'm like, th this this in <laughs> itself, if we could free up like 10% more, would give so many people, you know, more joy in life. Um, you know, we've obviously uh, done the, the podcast mm -hmm. and built a business on the back of just eating a lot more cleanly. And I think a lot of that has to do with the discipline we built around food and exercise and lifestyle and leaning into that because, one of the first things I noticed when I was being really sharp with my diet was mental clarity, better sleep, uh, feeling more energized for certain things. And I think that momentum can compound like an investment, you know, like you have days and days and days of you eating cleanly and eating well and treating your body really well. You look back 90 days late, 90 days go by and you have a compounded effect of what that effort looks like. Um, so, you know, long way of saying there's so many things that happen, but I think at the end of the day, it, it frees up your time. Mm -hmm. Like it frees up your time to spend 
more energy on a business idea, which maybe gives you more time on the back end that you can spend with your family. Um, so I really think this is the most, one of the most upstream things you can do in terms of buying back time as just treating your body with some intention. Yeah. I think to Harry's point, there's a lot of questioning around health in general. And we get the, this question a lot of like, do I worry about my nutrition? Do I worry about exercise? Do I sauna? Do I cold plunge? <laughs> do I, do I buy a smartwatch? Do I buy an aura ring? I think for us, I think nutrition is like the ultimate gateway and everything else will follow just by taking control over the food that you choose to put in your system. Um, like some of the, like one of the best period, like one of the best shapes I've ever been in was like in 2019, all I did was I just followed like a really strict, like meat heavy paleo diet. Mm -hmm. And then I just went on really long walks and I got like the most ripped and felt the best that I had ever been. And it was really just like taking control over the food that I was putting into my system. But I also think taking the pressure off and just focusing on like, what is the one change where all momentum will flow from is great. And maybe your one change is just, I'm going to eat a gram of protein per pound of body weight every single day. And maybe that comes from beef, maybe that comes from chicken, maybe that comes from a protein shake. And you're like, wow, I'm eating more protein and I feel more satiated, I'm losing weight. Okay, great, maybe I'll try a paleo diet or a carnivore diet. Maybe I'll go to the gym, maybe I'll do a CrossFit class, maybe I'll sign up for that 5K run that leads to a half marathon, a marathon, an Ironman. Maybe now I'll get a sauna, maybe I'll optimize my sleep. It's like, I think there's a lot of pressure around all these things that you can do to improve your health. But I think that if you just start with nutrition and you you note, you tangibly notice, okay, the food that I put into my body makes me feel really good and I feel like a different person, all those other changes will naturally come from that. I think I was telling you, like for me, it was just eating all red meat from the grocery store and that progressed to all these other things where now it's buying a quarter cow from a rancher and doing an Ironman and launching a business, but it all stemmed from that one thing. Mm -hmm. um, the other really interesting thing for both Harry and I is that I actually think nutrition led to us kind of like reconnecting with Christ and having mm. our journey with faith. Mm. And what I say by that, what I mean by that is um, gaining control of our health gave us the confidence to start the Meat Mafia brand and the mm. podcast, mm. which allowed us to connect with so many interesting people in the health space. And what Harry and I both noticed was that the people that we respected the most on the show were men and women of faith and almost all of them were Christian. Mm -hmm. And for us, we, we said there's, there's clearly something there. They probably have like a level of happiness and understanding and faith that we don't have. Mm -hmm. We should lean in, lean into that. We got connected with a great church, mm -hmm. got rebaptized, and it's been the single best change that we've ever made. And I don't think that would have happened if we didn't take control of our nutrition because it led to this entire journey that it literally went from like red meat to Christ over the course <laughs> of two years, which I know sounds crazy, but it's that's actually what happened to us too. Yeah, and I know for myself, uh, the ability to feel confident enough to take risks outside of what I was doing previously mm. was a test of faith. Mm. And that ability to take on more risk or understand that, hey, like, I can actually go out and try to start a business and go out and try to start the podcast and maybe make a little bit of an uncovered bet on myself. <laughs> um, that is testing my faith, which previously I was working a corporate job and that faith was never tested. So I never was really feeling the need to uh, connect with that spiritual essence of like feeling the pressure of, um, you know, taking a risk. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that was for me, you know, similar to you, just that connection to being, uh, t you know, testing your faith. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, not sure what the outcome is going to be, but just knowing that there is a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was definitely a huge component mm-hmm. of us finding Christ again. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's very interesting. What I'm hearing from you guys is that there's, um, it's like a free market at work <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of working like your own corporate job where you're not sort of just listening to an authority. You have to sort of make decisions on your own. And that led to you needing something uh, or uh, seeking something, some more stable ground from which to build a lot of the st- stuff that you had been building. And that, that ultimately led you to Christ. Is, am I getting it right? What, what, what's yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I think you hit the nail on the head. Where, I mean, previously there's the... I mean, the corporate world does a great job of keeping you comfortable. Mm. And that, that is a that can be a good thing for some people. Mm. But being on the other side of that, seeing my own evolution internally and now understanding uh, the strength that I've built through taking more risks and having to build uh, structure in my own life that once used to just fall under the corporate realm mm. um, and building that on values that are faith-based and, um, you know, Christian values that I think really do support like, uh, the lens of life that I'm trying to grow in the most, which is just like starting a family, starting a business, being a provider, being a creator, like all those things through just understanding the basic principles of Christianity. You're like, okay, like I can build a business based (laughs) on these principles because they're meaningful. And if you apply them, like you, you will create good in the world. You'll be uh, a giver and giving will then be, uh, you know, re- received back to you. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I've just realized over the last year that like taking that step and exposing myself to the heat of the fire has led to a lot of growth, a lot of, mm. you know, uh, getting rid of old habits. That I think we're just like built into me through not uh, taking those risks, but yeah. Yeah. There's, um, this raw dairy farmer out of Colorado that we love. His name is Josh Rayner. He's on Twitter. And uh, one of his quotes that he said on, it might've been on Twitter, he said it directly to me was, you're never gonna have a strong gut instinct if you have an inflamed gut. Um, (laughs) And I think that that's really true because I was the perfect testament to that. My gut was so inflamed from, I was in in even just like the metabolic fog that a lot of people are in. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most common things that people notice, whether they go carnivore or they just take control of the food that they put in their system, this fog clears. There's this like, there's this clarity and cleanliness of mind that you've never experienced before. And so I think for both Harry and I, Harry was in Boston, I was in New York. We'd had these incredible experiences with our, our nutrition. We kind of just said like, we, if we look down the road in 20 years, are the decisions that we're making from a work perspective actually gonna make us happy? <laughs> and there's also this weird, um, this like almost like liberal, strange social dynamic of trying to almost trying to teach you in these cities to not get married, don't have kids, Mm. keep working the corporate job. And I think by kind of getting our metabolic health under control, it made us awaken that fog and realize, oh, the things that society and our university is telling us are actually not the things that we want. So let's move to the city that we want to be in and put ourselves around people and create a business that's like actually in line with the things that we want. And I think Mm. that also led us to Christ. Like I don't think that had I gotten my health under control, I would have been mentally alert to realize that like Jesus actually was the answer that I was looking for. Mm. Well, so there, there's a parallel here that I, I, I see, at least from what I'm hearing from you guys, in that um, a lot of metabolic health is just 
cutting out really bad stuff. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, and a lot of a uh, lot of what Christianity teaches is just cut out the really bad stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, totally. it's called sin. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it it does seem to be sort of like a mentality shift because uh, I I think. The general conventional wisdom is, oh, you need to start this new habit or you need to now do sauna and cold plunge. You need to go and exercise and you need to do this, that. It's always sort of additive. And mm. uh, and I, I've always found that those tend to be not very, they don't stick very well, right? Because it's just sort of adding something without subtracting something first. Mm. And uh, this seems to be a pattern uh, that that seems to work where you cut out something now you have room for you know better habits yeah yeah addition by subtraction is my rule of thumb mm. i try to live by that as much as possible mm. whenever i'm trying to make a change or try to drop something before i add something it's mm. yeah there's so much that can be gained by just getting rid of the stuff that slows you down mm. um and that was definitely my realization with trying to re reorient my life around christ is mm. that yeah, there's just a lot of things that I'm doing that are just a complete waste of time. Um, <laughs> or not a complete waste of time, but if I want to get the most out of my time, mm. there's a more direct path to doing that. Mm. And um, I think over a long enough period of time, if you do follow mm. Christ and the way that he outlines what a good life should be, a life under his guidance, you realize that, yeah, you, you know, maybe, maybe you, uh, are kind of the outcast or you're making decisions that are very contrary to, you know, popular societal norms, but it does allow you to circumvent a lot of the, the problems out there, um, that a lot of people spend their entire lives chasing. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. So I have like a, I have like a series of three quick questions that I think will answer your exact point of addition <laughs> by subtraction. So how old are you? I'm 47. You're 47. And so what do you do for, uh, nutrition? I am a carnivore. I eat once a day, two pounds of meat, something like that. Salt, spices. Yeah, some spices. Yeah. So some, yeah. So meat and salt. And then yeah. what do you do for exercise? I uh, I do CrossFit twice a week. Yeah. So you're in incredible shape for a 47 year old. <laughs> you eat meat. You do CrossFit. You play with your kids. Mm -hmm. It's so simple. It's like you don't need like the Peloton and the O ring and this crazy <laughs> customized diet plans. It's like single ingredient real foods that you cook for yourself and just finding some type of exercise where you can get your heart rate up to like 140, 150 a day, you know, walk 10, 15,000 steps a day, get out in the sun. It's like, it's very simple. It's, mm -hmm. it's incredible how simple it is. And like, the thing is, I think we innately know the things that we should be doing that are good for us, but even with all the technology, you know, we, we, we can't seem to figure it out. But I think that is the empowering thing about this episode is like, there are these very simple changes that everyone has the ability to make. And I think the cool thing about health is that for most people, like it is God given. It's one of the fairest pursuits ever where it's like you work a job, you know, you work really hard. Maybe the boss has a relationship with a, a coworker. He gives him the, him or her the promotion. Oh, you know, Hey, I play college football. I'm working really hard, but you're not as talented as the other guy that eats mm -hmm. Cheetos. So he gets the starting linebacker job. Fitness is something where it's like, if you, if you put in the work and do the simple things day in and day out, anyone can have incredible health. Mm. Yeah. Well, so what are some of your tips to cut out some of the bad things? Because I, I think that that's often a big barrier for a lot of people that are trying to change their diet is that in a sense, they're already addicted to a lot of stuff. Yeah. Know, I can't give up chocolate. <laughs> yeah. You mean I can't eat chocolate? <laughs> what about pizza, man? I just love pizza too much. Um, <laughs> 
you know, I, I get that a lot, right? Where, yeah. uh, where there are certain foods that people just are, I don't know, like for the lack of a better word, they're kind of addicted. Like you know, they what, can't live without them. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 what advice do you have for those people? Cause I, in a sense, I, I, I sympathize and mm, I do totally. cheat with like keto cookies or something once in yeah. a while, just because I crave that taste. Um, what, what, what's your sort of like uh, suggestion for that? And I, I guess at, at, a, at a spiritual level, it applies to sin as well. But yeah. What, yeah. What, what's your suggestion there? This would be my playbook. Mm. So I think we, a lot of times when we're trying to make change, we try to mm. change everything at once. Mm. And that's a total, like, that is a lie that you're telling yourself. You can't fix your diet and then add in a five workouts a week mm. and then mm-hmm. like do all the other things that you're trying to change with your health. So you got to start with picking one thing. So I would say ignore the gym at first mm. and focus on the minimum viable effort mm. to be active, which is in my opinion, just walking 10 to 15,000 steps and be cons- just be- show yourself that you can be consistent doing that. Mm. That consistency will give you more confidence in this area of health that maybe you haven't had before. So that would be my activity. I would say focus on that. Focus on being really, really consistent mm-hmm. with something pretty basic like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, with the diet stuff, I would say pick the thing that's hurting you the most mm-hmm. and eliminate it for a week. Show yourself that you can do it for a week. You can have no pizza for a week. You have no soda for a week. Whatever the one thing is that's causing you the biggest problems. And then give yourself a little reward on the seventh day of you having done that and then try to double the time period the next time you do that. So go two mm-hmm. weeks without the pizza or the Coke and then let that momentum carry you forward and that confidence build. Because a lot of times what I've found when I'm trying to create these habits is that a lot of it is really just like that momentum is just stagnant and you have it, you don't have the wind behind your back mm-hmm. to get you feeling like you're making the right decisions. And if you walk and eliminate the thing that's hurting you the most, if you walk a bunch and eliminate the thing that's hurting you the most, if you're trying to like lose weight or just get marginally healthier, sleep better, like all of those things will happen pretty quickly mm-hmm. after that. Um, so I would just try to give yourself like a month to experiment with some of those habit forming things. Yeah, and I think when you're going through that habit formation pattern, it's really important to just get any of the, the temptations out of eyesight from you. <laughs> so what I would do is if I'm gonna do the challenge that Harry's mm-hmm. talking about, I'm going through my pantry, I'm getting the seed oils, I'm getting the the crackers, the chips, the cookies, the brownies, whatever. I'm throwing all that shit into the trash. I'm not mm-hmm. putting it into a box. I'm not putting it in the corner. I'm like, because I know that if it's if those temptations are there when I get hungry, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to indulge in those things. And what's worked for me is I, I kind of break my week up into two. So if I'm going to go to the grocery store, I'll go to the grocery store on like Sunday and then I'll go to the grocery store on Wednesday in the middle of the week. Mm-hmm. And I think about it of like three day blocks. Mm-hmm. So I've, I budget out. I'm like, I probably eat about like two pounds of meat per day. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to, to Whole Foods on a Sunday, I'm like, okay, I'll probably, I'll buy six pounds of meat, mm-hmm. mostly red meat, some chicken thighs, maybe some pork, some fish if I want it. I'll throw some fruits in there, maybe like some berries that are a little bit lower in sugar. Mm-hmm. I'll get a stick of butter. I'll get some some raw milk, some cream, some cold brew coffee maybe some some sweet potatoes or some vegetables. Sometimes I, I won't, but I'm gonna stock my pantry with those single ingredient real foods. And then I'm also gonna find maybe some snacks like a pork rind or like a parmesan, like the 
the parm crisps, they make the cheese crisps that are like mm -hmm. all protein and fat that kind of give you that satiation, that crunch if you're missing mm -hmm. a chip. And I'm only gonna fill my pantry with those things. So I'm basically giving myself no option but to do that. But then the kicker is like, you have to eat a big enough portion where you feel full and satiated. <laughs> so that's why steak and fatty salmon and chicken, these things work so well is there's so much fat and there's so many nutrients in those things that that's what's filling you up. That's why when you go to a Dorito bag and you eat the whole thing, you're, you're still starving because you didn't give your body the actual nutrients <laughs> that it wants. So if you're able to actually eat enough of these real foods every single day to where you're at, you're full, you then don't have, you don't fall for the deception of wanting the pizza or the keto cookie or something like that. Mm. And then if I, it, and I think it's important to do that for like a month, like mm. to Harry's point, you need to give yourself a habit formation. And then after a month, it's like, okay, I'm going to, if I want the chocolate, I'm going to buy something like a Hue bar where it's like really high quality, dark chocolate. It's mm -hmm. mostly cacao. It's lower sugar. They're not using any palm oil in it. And maybe I'll do like a bowl of some strawberries, blueberries, like a couple chips of the dark chocolate and then like make some of my own like whipping cream with like mm -hmm. heavy fat and maple syrup and stuff like that. And that's kind of like my treat every once in a while, but you have to rewire your habits and your taste buds to the point where you don't want that thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to do that is to like eat so many of these satiating foods that are going to keep you full for a really long time. So a woman is like, shit, this guy's telling me to eat two pounds of meat a day. <laughs> it's like two pounds of meat is 1600 calories max you're you're probably burning if you're active and you're walking you're burning like 3000 calories a day mm -hmm. so you're in a thousand to 1200 calorie deficit so you think those meals are really big but now you're not eating any of the snacks so you're actually losing weight but you feel really full and really satiated and it doesn't feel like you're dieting like i think mm -hmm. even the concept of dieting is is the wrong term to use you're just eating you're just eating real foods and you're eating to satiation, so you you don't really feel this need to snack all the time, which exactly. unfortunately a lot of people do. All right, so a um, lot of great tips. I'm I'm hoping that a lot of people are inspired by your guys' story and you know sort of seeing practical ways to get get to this thing. Uh, where can they find you guys? Uh, podcast and Twitter and all that, um, so they can follow you and get more tips like what you just shared. Yeah, we're on Twitter. It's uh, Meat Mafia. Harry mm -hmm. and Meat Mafia Brett and then we have the podcast which is the Meat Mafia podcast on Spotify and Apple if you guys can tune in and rate us we would love that <laughs> and then uh, on Instagram we've got the Meat Mafia podcast as well and then our product that we just recently launched is Noble Origins mm -hmm. um, so we have that on Instagram and Twitter as well Eat Noble Origins so yeah. yeah, Noble is just a really easy way to get more nutrient-dense animal products into your diet. So it's an it's an all-in-one protein powder. So in one scoop of Noble, you're getting beef protein from the cow, a full organ complex, uh, colostrum, which is the first milk, and then collagen powder too. And uh, we just sweeten it with stevia and then um, some Dutch cocoa powder, vanilla bean, and the vanilla too. So just another easy way when we're talking about, hey, if, you're, if your thing is going to be just getting more protein into your diet, mm -hmm. it's just another really easy way to get all those nutrient-dense foods in in a way that tastes really good so that's just insatiate you yeah. insatiating yeah. yeah and we we just stocked out a product which is why we didn't bring you any but <laughs> come next week we're going to be restocked we're going to bring you some bags right. and uh yeah. for your kids you mix some chocolate into into some raw milk they think it's chocolate milk they love it yeah so. they, they do love that they do love that all right so um last question when are you guys writing a book <sighs> Can you help us? <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard you're the master and we, we definitely, I, we need to, okay. uh, it needs to happen. I think in the next, 
I mean, how much time should we give it? 12, eight, 12 18 months? <laughs> I'm some, ready to go. Yeah, Harry's <laughs> Harry's Harry's the creative visionary. Mm-hmm. So we we balance each other out really uh-huh. well. But he's he likes documentary and book. I like mm-hmm. it too. Mm-hmm. We just need to make the time. We like the title, Fix the Food. We think that mm-hmm. could be an interesting title okay. potentially. Okay. Um, but hopefully within the next year. Okay, all right. Well, let's talk about it. We can, we can figure something out. Anyway, thanks, guys. Thanks, Appreciate Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.